0: This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America.
1: Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... From the
2: extreme drought and risk of famine in Somalia to the erratic race across the Sahel, UNICEF is being challenged to respond at an unprecedented scale to emergencies that have all the markings of Climate-induced disasters.
1: That's UNICEF's global communication and advocacy director Paloma Escudero on the challenges that children face from starvation, disease, and exploitation. Details coming up. Also, talks continue between Ethiopia's federal government and its Tigray region following last week's peace deal. The balance of power in the U.S. Congress is at stake today in midterm elections. And the U.S. government has designated five South Africans as global terrorists. These stories and more on African News Tonight. Our top story in Cairo, world leaders are wrapping up day three of the Global Climate Summit, COP 27. The discussion today focused heavily on how to help communities protect themselves from the effects of climate change. VOA correspondent Heather Murdoch, who is covering the summit from Istanbul, wraps up the key topics today with editor Kate Pound Dawson.
3: Some of the major things they talked about today were about adaptation. If you recall yesterday, there was a lot of conversation about a lot of funds need to be put into developing or poorer countries. And the main thing they wanted to talk about today of what to do with those funds is how for the most vulnerable communities to adapt to climate change that is coming regardless of what is done to reduce emissions and slow global warming we could make it as slow as we possibly can reach all of our goals this year and in the coming years. And by 2030, it is still expected that half the population of the world will be vulnerable to catastrophes from global warming. So there's a lot of discussion about how to adapt, how to warn people in advance, um, where to put funding, you know, from large scale things that can be done on a global level to how to create mechanisms to fund smaller scale things that will be different in different communities in different parts of the world. Another major topic was the discussion of flooding. Flooding has become a huge problem due to climate change and is expected to increase. They identified some countries in West Africa and South Asia that they find within these countries 27 million children are currently at risk um, to be victims of flooding in the next seven or eight years. And they talked about not just what flooding does in the short term in terms of destroying houses and properties, but the long term economic and social and health impacts. Um, besides the fact that it makes people sick, floods make people sick, bring diseases. It also destroys hospitals. Um, it you know forces people who have means to leave. So there's long-term health impacts to care for people who have gotten sick through this. There's also the financial loss. Often the people who are hurt most by floods are the poorest people. So when they lose their homes or properties, they're not necessarily able to recoup that. Now, I understand there's talk
4: about the issue of greenwashing. What is that, and, and what were people saying today?
3: Greenwashing is the expression used to to explain when companies or governments or people um, show that they are or, or say that they are doing things for the environment to make themselves look good, um, but don't actually do it. Um, so it's not that uncommon um, an expression, but it's also, unfortunately, not that uncommon a practice. Um, today, the UN Secretary General spoke about this and said that we as a world need to have no more tolerance for greenwashing. This is a huge undertaking he's speaking of because there is almost no accountability globally and even within most countries for environmental promises. So companies um, or governments will promise certain levels of emissions reductions or pollution reduction and Over and over and over again, you find that they can promise this, but there's no there's no environment police, so they don't have to ever prove that they did it. It's an incredibly difficult thing to tackle, but without tackling it, without dealing with it, no matter what anyone does at these conferences, future conferences, if people don't follow through with what they've promised, it will not make a difference.
1: That was correspondent Heather Murdoch in Istanbul speaking with my colleague Kate bond For more on the climate conference, check out voaafrica.com and voanews.com and tune in to all your favorite VOA programs. UNICEF warns millions of children caught in climate-induced disasters are at risk of starvation, disease, exploitation, and death. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva.
4: A UNICEF analysis released Tuesday finds 27.7 million children in 27 countries have been affected by flooding so far this year. Among them, Chad, the Gambia, and northeast Bangladesh have recorded the worst floods in a generation. The agency reports Pakistan's record-breaking floods have killed nearly 1,700 people, 615 of them children. UNICEF's Global Communication and Advocacy Director, Paloma Escudero, says she saw for herself the enormity of the disaster during a visit to Pakistan last week. She says the needs are vast, adding 10 million girls and boys need immediate life-saving support.
2: The floods have contaminated drinking water, which is spawning deadly waterborne diseases, such as acute watery diarrhea, which compounds already acute malnutrition. Estimates suggest close to 1.6 million children in Pakistan could be suffering from severe acute malnutrition. She notes stagnant water is a perfect breeding ground
4: for mosquitoes, increasing the risk of malaria and dengue. She warns many vulnerable children and young people will die in the days and weeks to come without urgent action. Escudero spoke on a video link from el Sheikh's site of COP27, the climate change conference. She says scientists have found the recent floods in Pakistan have been made worse by climate change. While children are the least responsible for creating this problem, she says they are suffering
2: the most. In Africa. Just like in Pakistan, children are paying the price for a climate disaster not of their making. From the extreme drought and risk of famine in Somalia to the erratic rains across the Sahel, UNICEF is being challenged to respond at an unprecedented scale to emergencies that have all the markings of climate-induced disasters.
4: UNICEF reports children account for almost half of the more than 20 million people facing famine in drought-stricken Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia. Nearly 40 youth climate activists from around the world are in Sharm el-Sheikh. They are working with UNICEF to sensitize delegates to the severe impact of the climate crisis on the world's poorest, most vulnerable children. Escudera notes, it is not up to young people to keep raising the alarm. What is needed, she says, is for people with power to start acting. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva.
1: Talks continue in Nairobi today between Ethiopia's federal government and its Tigray region following last week's peace deal between the two. French news agency AFP says commanders from both sides are tasked with discussing how to implement the truce. That includes addressing disarmament issues, including plans for disarming rebels of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF. The African Union says the meeting should also provide a roadmap for humanitarian aid and restoration of services in Tigray.
0: Uh, Yes, uh, uh, what the Ethiopian uh, constitution. In 1995 what it actually
1: do. In 1995 a constitution was introduced by TPLF leader Prime Minister Meles Zenawi that would cast recast Ethiopia from a centrally unified republic to a federation of nine regional ethnic states that was when ethnic federalism as it is known was enshrined in Ethiopia's constitution for the last 27 years under the TPLF Ethnic federalism has unleashed a struggle for supremacy among the three big Ethiopian ethnic groups Tigray, Oromo and Amara. To learn more about this complex ethnic concept, I talked to a professor who has written extensively on the subject. He is John Makum Mbaku, a Brady Presidential Distinguished Professor of Economics and John S. Hinckley Fellow at Weber State University, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C.
0: Uh, yes, uh, uh, what the Ethiopian... Uh constitution of 1995, what it actually did was it's established something called ethno territorial federal model of statehood. And the idea was to divide the, the country into ethnic geographic areas, And some of the ethnic groups were lumped together. Now Tigray uh, is one of the ethnic groups that actually had its own state. That is why in my books and in, in papers that I have published, I have argued that African countries should get away from uh, structuring their systems based on ethnicity and instead base their systems on ideas, for example, uh, democracy, rule of law. You can uh, create a country in which various ethnic groups can pursue their own interests but do so in a way that does not allow them to prevent other groups from doing the same.
1: Is ethnic, ethnic uh, federalism connected or in some way related to colonialism? And in most of Africa, ethnicity was politicized when the British turned the ethnic group into a unit of Local administration, which they termed indirect rule.
0: Uh, one of the things that colonialism did was that when the British and the French, the Belgians, when these groups came to Africa, they exploited ethnic differences to weaken uh, Africans in order to impose their rule. And so, oh, as you've seen in Rwanda, for example, where the the Germans first the Germans and the, and then the Belgians elevated one group over another, and claimed that one group was superior to, to the other genetically. And in West Africa, where the British uh, educated, promoted education for some groups, for example, in southern Nigeria, and not for other groups in, in northern Nigeria, and used one group as the military and the other group as uh, government administ- administrators, civil servants. And so what, has hap- what happened after independence is that, uh, as we see in Nigeria and uh, in Uganda, one group, uh, and uh, also Rwanda, one group dominated the army and the other group dominated administration. And so some of the problems that you have in Burundi between the Tutsi and the Hutu, and in Rwanda between the Tutsi and the Hutu, and in, in Nigeria between the northerners and the southerners, uh, and in Uganda, between the northerners and the Southerners, all these problems relate to
1: uh, colonialism and and it's and it 's so ironic uh, professor that Ethiopians who used to think of themselves as Africans of a special kind were never colonized. but the country today resembles a quintessential African system marked by ethnic mobilization for ethnic gains
0: well the, the yeah it is true that Ethiopia was never colonized and uh, and so what has, what has happened in Ethiopia is the failure of uh, various governments to create real Ethiopian political parties, parties that are based on ideas, not on ethnic groups, parties that source their membership from all Ethiopians, not just from the ethnic groups that support them. This is the key. And so, yes, Ethiopia has fallen into the same trap that African countries fell into through colonialism. And so even though Ethiopia was not colonized, it has uh, uh, found itself suffering from the same uh, problems that those countries in Africa that were colonized are suffering from, and I think that this agreement that was uh, achieved in Pretoria uh, on Wednesday opens the door for Ethiopians to revisit this concept of ethnic uh, ethno linguistic federalism and ask themselves. How can they live together peacefully and have a federal government that is reflective of Ethiopia, not just reflective of some agglomeration of ethnic groups, but uh, reflective of all of Ethiopia, so that any Ethiopian, regardless of what ethnic group they belong to, whether they are a minority minority ethnic group or a majority ethnic group, can participate in government and the economy without any fear of uh, being oppressed by some other group. This is the key. So, the elephant in the room for Ethiopia is this concept of ethnic federalism.
1: That was John Makum Mbaku, a Brady Presidential Distinguished Professor of Economics and John S. Henkley Fellow at Weber State University, speaking with me by phone from the U.S. state of Arizona. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyus Wuhib in Washington. The balance of power in the U.S. Congress is at stake today as voters decide whether Democrats will continue to hold the majority in the Senate and House, either delivering a boost for Joe Biden's presidency or shifting power to Republicans. VOA's congressional correspondent, Catherine Gibson, reports from one of the key places in election 2022 from the southern state of Georgia.
5: From Pennsylvania to Ohio, Nevada to New Hampshire. Candidates making the final push in campaigns that will decide the direction of the United States for the next two years. And in the key state of Georgia, the day beginning with a prayer.
6: This election season, I pray.
5: And a warning from Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker.
0: We
1: got to get it right, because if we don't get it right, we won't recognize this country tomorrow.
5: Walker's supporters frustrated with President Joe Biden. Georgia voter Emmett Shedd.
0: After all of what Democrats have done, I just can't sit back and allow the country to just fall behind. The border crisis is out of control, and uh, it doesn't appear that Joe Biden's going to do anything about it.
5: In a recent Pew Research Center poll, more than three-quarters of U.S. voters surveyed said the economy was their top concern this election. The housing market, um, the price of gas, um, you know, you're noticing in the grocery stores, you know, food is uh, um, very, very expensive, and there's items that you can't even find anymore.
1: Because democracy itself is on the ballot. we got to show up tomorrow.
5: Walker's opponent, Senator Raphael Warnock, won a runoff election in January 2021 that gave Democrats control of the U.S. Senate and the ability to enact Biden's agenda.
0: The economy is the number one issue for me, and I think that the Democratic Party and Senator Warnock in particular really kind of focus on the everyday issues of everyday Americans. The Republicans like to talk about the stock market and everything.
5: And after the U.S. Supreme Court decision in June ending the federal right to abortion, social issues have also motivated female and independent voters to vote for Democrats. That's very concerning to me. I think everybody um, should have access to health care, whether what your personal views are on Roe v. Wade or abortion. What size you need, baby? Voters here in Georgia are key in deciding control of the U.S. Senate. This is just one of a handful of races nationwide that are still too close to call and will give either party a narrow majority. All 435 U.S. House seats are also up for re-election, with most polls showing Republicans will take control. Katherine <laughs> Gibson, VOA News, in Georgia.
1: The outcome of the midterms will determine whether President Joe Biden will be able to move forward with his agenda for the country for the next two years. VOA's Carol Van Dam asked Straight Talk Africa host Heidi Adams, who is at a polling site in Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., to describe what happens if Republicans win control of the U.S. House of Representatives, which they are poised to do in terms of Biden's policy goals
6: will need to take control of one or both chambers of Congress to sort of block or roll back President Biden's agenda. Uh, but if the Republicans do take control of the House, we'll see um, one big change in that Nancy Pelosi will no longer be the Speaker of the House, she will no longer be House Majority Leader, and she will no longer be second in line to the President after, of course, Vice President Kamala Harris, those roles will then fall to um, the Republicans' Kevin McCarthy. And he has said that immigration will be firmly in these parties' crosshairs um, should they take control of the House. The Republicans are confident that they are going to be ushering in a red wave that will see them take power, not just in Congress, but also several governorships, especially, you know, in battleground states such as Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona. These are sort of called swing states where races are almost always cliffhangers during election cycles. But in Congress, the Republicans have promised not only to roll back or block President Biden's agenda, but also open investigations into President Biden, his family and senior White House officials, Um, And some Republicans, on the other hand, are promising that if they prevail in Congress, they'll go even further than the Supreme Court and formally outlaw abortion everywhere by act of Congress. So there's a lot at stake, including for
3: countries outside
6: of the United
3: States. Sure. And one of the other points of contention, too, if the Republicans win control of one or both chambers is, When you talk about African countries as uh, reproductive health care funding and you talk about Roe v. Wade, it could also impact that kind of international family planning funding, right?
6: Absolutely. This election has ramifications beyond just American domestic policy. The Republicans, should they gain control, will effectively be calling the shots on where and how the U.S. spends its money.
3: And you're at a polling place in Northern Virginia, which is just outside of the District of Columbia. Can you tell us what's at stake in Virginia a little bit?
6: Yes. Well, this is what you would call, what the Americans call, a battleground state. Um, but the dynamics here have changed uh, in recent years. Um, to let you know that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy made a last-minute campaign stop here in Virginia yesterday. He was stumping for um, their senatorial candidate. Um, Jen Kiggins, who is was trying to topple Democrats in Lane Luria. Now, Republicans have fond memories of their gubernatorial victory in the state last year. That's when Glenn Youngkin flipped the state, which was for a long time seen as um, one that was sort of trending blue, but he flipped the state and, and he became the governor. Now, Republicans are hoping to sort of uh, capitalize on that once again, trying their luck here. Again, they're hoping to take back as many as three seats in the state. They want to prevail in the House races between Yesley Vega and Democrat Abigail Sandberger, as well as the GOP's Han Kao, his campaign against Jennifer Wexton, who is a Democrat.
3: And getting back to the Senate side, the, the other chamber of Congress, is there a fighting chance for Democrats even to hold on to the Senate?
6: Well, this is... The interesting part of this, the Democrats, they believe they do have a fighting chance, but the Democrats cannot afford any losses here whatsoever. I and mean, their game is to either keep things as they are, not lose any seats, and to actually in fact gain. And that is going to be you know, the litmus
1: test. And that's VOA's Heidi Adams from Arlington, Virginia, speaking to my colleague Carol Van Dam. <laughs> Mali's National Human Rights Commission has condemned restrictions on press freedom after authorities suspended one of the country's main TV channels. Action was taken against Joliba TV after it aired an editorial criticizing rising intolerance and attacks on freedom of expression. Annie Reisenberg reports from Bamako Mali.
7: Mali's National Human Rights Commission released a statement Tuesday expressing concern about the exercise of certain civil and political rights, in particular those relating to freedom of expression and freedom of the press. The statement called on Mali's government to ensure respect for these rights at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. The commission, which serves an advisory role to the government, also condemned all restrictions or attempts to restrict freedom of expression and the press. Last week, Mali's High Authority of Communication, HAC, suspended one of the country's main news channels, Joliba TV News. The authority accused Joliba TV of serious and repeated breaches and violations of the substantive provisions of the Code of Ethics for Journalism in Mali. Joliba's Director of Information, Mohammed Ataher Halidou, was summoned to HAC in October over an editorial in which he expressed concern about attacks on freedom of expression and democracy by the ruling military government, and in which he called on the HAC to speak on the issue. The HAC accused Halidou of making defamatory remarks and unfounded accusations concerning freedom of expression in Mali and the transitional authorities. Halidu has spoken openly about freedom of expression and freedom of the press in Mali, telling VOA News in March that self-censorship was rampant in the Malian media, as journalists feared reprisals from the government. Malian authorities this year have refused to grant accreditation to foreign journalists and detained or targeted several prominent government critics. The HEC was also behind the decision earlier this year to take France 24 and Radio France International off the air in Mali indefinitely, following reports on alleged human rights abuses by Mali's army. Halidu spoke out against the decision at the time, again in a televised editorial, deploring in one of many instances the lack of freedom of expression and press freedom in the country. Joliba TV released a statement last week confirming receipt of the HAC's decision and saying it had already composed an appeal. Maison de la Presse, Mali's main media advocacy organization, also released a short statement saying it regrets the suspension of Joliba TV news and called on the high authority of communication to reconsider its decision. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali. (laughs)
1: And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barro, and our engineer, Joe Gill, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.